Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Father, please bless your word. We sense it is very foundational where you are about to take us. So, Holy Spirit, bring revelation, revelation. Um, Open up our hearts, illuminate our hearts with the truth of God's word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we kind of move to a new dimension um, in our series about the heart. Um, We started... Uh, if I paraphrase the many weeks, um, some of which I've done, some of which other pastors have done, it's really focused on the heart. Our foundation text has, of course, been Proverbs 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Guard the affections of your heart. Protect and pay attention to the welfare of your innermost being. Um, protect your mind, one translation says, for life flows from it. And, and, and that has been the foundation text. And we, we understood, of course, that instantly it wasn't talking about the physical heart that sits on the left side of our chest. We knew he was talking about something else. We knew he was talking about the innermost being, the inner man, what I called our central processing system, the command center of our lives, where, where, where our mind, our will, our emotions exist, uh, where we make decisions that affect life. Uh, and then we also understood as we went along that um, the enemy's, one of his main strategies in trying to achieve his objective, and his objective is clear by Je- Jesus himself puts it to us in John 10 verse 10, to steal, kill, and destroy Of course, we understood that one of his major strategies would be to try and affect the heart because out of the heart flow the issues of life, the wellspring of life. Uh, It determines, one translation says, the cause of life. And so he would direct his attention to affect the heart. Uh, What he wants to do is to introduce a heart disease and frankly, if if he can achieve it, induce a heart attack. Um, not in a physical sense, um, but even more so in this sense that we have spoken about. Uh, and, and to varying degrees, we talked about how he achieves that. Uh, and we can see that from the outcome, how we live our lives. Uh, we can tell that there's a likelihood of a heart disease when we see certain things. Uh, when we see fear and it takes residence in a person's heart. When we see anxiety and worry, it takes residence in a person's heart. When we see a cold heart, a heart that can't give itself passionately to God. When we see an angry heart, when we see a deceitful heart, uh, when we see a hardened heart, the list goes on and on. When we see any of these things and more that time doesn't allow us to mention, um, when we see a heart that is devoid of joy, Uh, These are all indications that heart disease has set in. A heart that doesn't give of itself, doesn't give uh, of its resources, 
um, uh, a, a, a heart that has lost faith completely. The list goes on and on. A heart that is not content. These are all indications of, of some sort of uh, heart disease. And, and so today, we want to start to talk about the antidote to heart disease. The antidote to heart disease. When, when we celebrate when a disease, a cure is found for a disease. And this heart disease that I have spoken about has a cure. And for the next part of this series, we're going to be dealing with that cure. I actually feel this message is very foundational. Um, I'll share, you, share with you a bit of our, uh, our home life. So my wife saw me this morning and she could tell that I was not how I am normally, prepare, preparing to come to church and, you know, tidying up and prepping my message. And she said to me, she asked me that you're not normally like this because I think she heard me say mutter a few things. And I said to her, I sense the enormity of this next stage because it is so foundational to our Christian life. And a lot of the challenges that we have seen in our Christian work, our Christian life, and a lot of what most of you have seen as church leaders boils down to what we have to say in the next two or three Sundays or however long it takes us to get through this stage. So what is the antidote to this heart disease? In 1 John 4 verse 8, the Apostle John says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He says in verse 16 of that same chapter, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. The antidote for any form of heart disease is the love of God. And that phrase, God is love, is really the foundation of understanding, receiving, giving, and living in the love of God. God is love, the apostle says. Not that he expresses love on its own. Not that he does things that are love. But that he is love. It is not just his character. It is his character. It is his person, the essence of who he is. The great theologian A.W. Tozer says it this way. Nothing God ever does or ever did or ever will do is separate from the love of God. God is love. 
And my prayer is that those three words, the Spirit will illuminate them in your heart, expand them in your heart, transform who you are just by understanding that God is love. To help us understand that, I want to contrast that love of God with some other expressions of love. And the contrast, of course, is brought to us by the Bible itself. For we know that the New Testament part of the Bible was written originally in Greek. And when translated into English, because the Greek language is a bit more expansive, as it was translated into English, it was in a sense constricted. So sometimes a word would have many expressions in the Greek language, but the translators would combine the expressions to form one word in English. And so every time you and I see the word love, it actually has at least four different expre expressions, three of them clearly stated in the New Testament translations. And it's the contrast that begins to help us understand and begin to grasp and start this journey to receiving this love of God at levels maybe that we've never done before. So, of course, the first kind of love is the, is, is the Greek word sturge, S-T-O-R-G-E. Now, this is love that is natural, is unforced, is instinctive, is actually familial love. It's the love that is seen in a family. The affections and the bonds that exist within a family, the love a parent has for a child or siblings have for each other, it's family love. And we see it so well expressed in certain families where we just are on the outside and we admire the bond the family have. The love between the parents and the children, the children and the parents, the siblings with each other. And when we want to express that kind of love, if we were speaking in the Greek, our word would be sturgy. And then there's a second expression of love, second expression of the word love. It's the philia love. It's that powerful emotional bond that exists in deep friendships. A trusted friend, a confidant. It's when people say, that's my brother. They don't mean brother in a family sense. They mean there's something that knits us together. We have mutual interest. We really care for each other. We watch each other's back. That's my sister. The American city Philadelphia was named from this love. 
The city of brotherly love. That's what it means. Deep friendships. And as I thought about this sermon, you know, I actually thought practically about my own life. And I could see all these expressions of love. I come from a family that has a very strong sturgy love. There's just a, a, a bond. I have friendships that fit into filial love. My friendship with Pastor Gandhi. My brother saw us the other day and said, what do you guys talk about all the time? He said, haven't you spoken about everything there is to speak about? Here you are again at a function and you spend the whole three hours whispering into each other's ears. I, I don't know what we talk about. I, I just don't know. It's just a filial love. And then, of course, there's eros. That talks about the sensual or romantic love. It's really what the Songs of Solomon is about. And that word is taken, of course, from Greek mythology. Eros, the Greek god, or if you want to use his Roman name, Cupid, the god of love, sexual desire, physical attraction, and physical love. It's from Eros that the word erotic is taken. This love on its own is self-seeking. It's about its own interest, its own satisfaction. It's needful within the boundaries of marriage. That's what Songs of Solomon is about. It is a part of love that is expressed in marriage. On its own, it cannot sustain a marriage. Two years of only Eros love and the marriage will start to collapse, I can assure you. But it is necessary as a part of marriage. When the enemy wants to abuse it, the enemy takes it outside marriage, as we see in today's contemporary culture. And then, of course, there is where we were going, the highest form of love, the agape love. Now, this is the God kind of love. It is God's immeasurable, incomparable, unconditional, and sacrificial love. This love gives without demanding or expecting any repayment. It's the love that God has for you and I. It's the one that we have to understand. Because it's the one that makes the difference. Thank God for Sturge love. It's a great thing to see where you see Sturge love expressed. Thank God for filial love. It's wonderful to see the bonds that can exist in friendship, deep friendships. Thank God for Eros love. What would marriage be without it? Dry and boring. But all those together, as good as they might be, and as necessary as they are, because I'm sure you've already figured out that in a marriage, for example, there must be some filial love, must be some sturgy love. 
certainly must be some eros love. But what keeps the marriage going, what keeps life going for you and I, is where there is the expression of this God kind of love, this agape love. That's the love that God has for you and I. This agape love. Now, what is this love and what is its, its application? If we go on from the scripture we started with in 1 John to verses 9 and 10, we begin to understand this agape love. You see, we must understand it if we can receive it. The challenge is that so, there are so many of us in the body of Christ who don't understand this love. And consequently, can't open up our hearts to receive what we don't understand. The result is that our Christian work shows that we don't understand and we haven't received this love. Because this is the only way I know to deal with heart disease. That the love of God is received by us in our hearts. So what is this love and what is its application? Verses 9 and 10 of 1 John. In this, in this the love of God was manifested towards us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. That we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Five things that I want to bring home. Four of them I will do today, and then the fifth one will kick us off from next week. The first thing in, in understanding this love is understanding God's sacrifice. He gave. He sacrificed. A lot of times when we think of sacrifice in relation to the cross, we think about Christ having sacrificed. But our minds don't, doesn't go quickly to God's own sacrifice. I want you to know that he sacrificed. He gave. The scripture we all know in John 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world. That's an agape kind of love. A sacrificial love. A giving love. A love that doesn't give and ask for something in return. A love that is not conditional. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In a very simplistic way, I thought about this. I thought about it in a way that brought it home to me. I have two sons, naturally. And I thought to myself, what would make me give the life of any of my sons. The truth is that 
No matter how much I say I love you, I love Doc with a filial love. But how many know that I'm not going to sacrifice Sochi for Doc? Am I allowed to say that? I mean, you can look at me so self-righteously as if you would sacrifice your son for me, but I know you won't when it comes down to it. I wish Doc all the best in the world. But JJ on a cross with nails being driven through his hands for Doc? How many know that's not going to happen? So I now thought to myself, but this is exactly what God did for you, Agu. His only begotten son. He gave him, sacrificed him for you. So let's think about the sacrifice when we think about God's love. Not in a religious sense, because religion has a way of obscuring things. But in a very simple, practical sense. Not in a sense of the church universal, but in a sense of the church you. That he, God sat down and took a decision. He thought about it, counted the cost, and decided that he was going to give his son for you. For you. Let that sink in as we begin to try to comprehend to the extent that the Spirit of God will give us the grace to the love of God. And it's not just that he gave. The second thing I wanted to mention is what he gave. He gave his only begotten son. He has billions of sons. But only one begotten son. And so that makes us think of the prize of his love. How much does his love for you cost? Because that's how we think naturally. We put a prize on things that we value. So how much, what is the cost, the prize of the love of God for you? One Corinthians six verse twenty, the Passion Translation says, "You were God's expensive purchase. That's who you are. Paid for with tears of blood. So by all means, then use your body to bring glory to God. You were God's expensive purchase. You cost God a lot." Your value is high. Your circumstances can't determine your value. The mere words of men can't determine your value. When people try to devalue you, they don't understand the true worth. When you get a diamond from the rough, it doesn't look like anything that has value. 
when it goes through the various processes and ends up in a shop on Bond Street, you will know it has value. Don't let anybody's words devalue you. They are ignorant of the price that was paid for you. You are an expensive purchase. You cost God himself. Not just a lot, his best. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. Again, the Passion Translation. I love how it expresses this. For you know that your lives were ransomed once and for all from the empty and futile way of life handed down from generation to generation. It was not a ransom payment of silver and gold which eventually perishes, but the precious blood of Christ, who like a spotless unblemished lamb was sacrificed for us. That's the ransom that was paid for you. The slavery of tyranny had you. The enemy put you on the block to be sold to the highest bidder of the many sins and the many evil demons that he, that he had. And there they are bidding for you. And some of us know because we were, we were redeemed from where they bought us. The alcohol bought you. The drugs bought you. The sexual immorality bought you. The hopelessness had you. Paid a high price for you. The list goes on and on. And then as they are bidding for you to pass you on, our Lord and Savior steps up. And after hearing all their beads, which were natural, he steps forward and says, I bid for them with my life. How many know the bidding battle is over? That's how we were redeemed, with his precious blood. And it wasn't just words. He then goes through the process to pay the price. Number three, as we try to understand and comprehend by God's grace his love, we marvel, number three, that he initiated it. The scripture we started with says, not that we loved him, but he loved us. He initiated it. It was his idea. We were still his enemies when he loved us. We were still rebellious when he loved us. We, we'd still, we, we still had our backs turned against him, and yet he loved us. He initiated it. Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us. What is the demonstration, God? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not sure that Sturge Love can, could have done that. I'm not sure that filial love could have done that. Eros love, by nature, is self-seeking. It is only this God kind of love that while we are still in the opposite camp, while we are still sinners, still rebellious, still enemies, he goes on and pays the price for the love for us. 
He initiated this. And number four, he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that word mean, propitiation? Let me first say that God's love does not do away with his other characteristics. We need to understand that. Because the enemy wants us to think that God's love does away with his holiness. No, he is, he, God is love in his holiness. God is love in his righteousness. God is love in his justness or fairness or justice. God is love in judgment. Every expression of God is love. And because God is love in all these things, when he looked at sin, his love compelled him to judge sin. He had to pour his wrath on sin. And you know, as I thought about this this morning, I thought this, the word clever, ingenious, whatever other phrase you can find, does not qualify what God did. I thought to myself, this, is, this could only be God. Because you see, if he does not express his other characteristics, his holiness, his justness or justice, his uh, wrath, then he becomes less God. But then all these things have to be wrapped up in his love. And his love means that, as the Bible demonstrated, he loves us enough to have to, to want us to be in relationship with him, not just for this life, but for eternity, and to fulfill his plans and purposes. But how does he do that? When we are in rebellion, we are sinning, we are turning our backs on him, and when the word declares that the wages of our actions, of our sin, must be death, how does he do that? So God sits in heaven. Now you and I can just think about it and move on. But it, just imagine how it came about. He sits in heaven. And he says, you know what? The only way we can do this is that we find someone. Who is sinless. So that qualifies the person to take on the sin. Because anybody who had sin is disqualified from taking on the sin. And then that person, I can now judge that person. Pour out my wrath on that person. Judge the sin the way that God should judge sin. Let's not be deceived. God judges sin. The world wants us to preach a version of Christianity that removes the word sin. 
No, that cannot be the gospel. The gospel is that God judges sin. But then the gospel is also that in Christ, He takes on the sin. And God judges Him for our sins. And that's what it means when it says the propitiation. It means Jesus takes on the penalty of our sin, the wrath of God for you and I. What kind of love is that? And as you see the scene played out at the end of his life, you begin to understand the enormity and how immeasurable God's love is. For as the Bible records in Matthew, the 27th chapter from the 45th verse, as he's hanging on the cross, and Jesus had been through physical and emotional pain in his life, don't forget, especially in the latter parts of his life, extreme pain. But nothing compared to what he was about to experience. When Jesus said, can this cup pass from me in the Garden of Gethsemane? He wasn't talking about the crucifixion. Can the nails pass from me? No, 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 no. He was ready for that. Can, can you take the pain of the spear that's going to be thrust into my side? No, 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 no. He was ready for all those. What cup was he talking about? He was talking about the cup of separation from his father. That is there any way we can avoid this God? Can't we find another way? I'm ready to take the physical pain. I'm ready to take the emotional pain. But I just don't know how I can handle the pain of separation from you. For first time in the Synoptic Gospels, the very first time Jesus called God, called him God and not Father. That's the first time that Jesus had not called him Father. Because that separation had taken place. For the first time, he calls out to his Father, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. And his father does not respond. I just try to imagine how God would have felt restraining himself for eternity past and eternity future. There had been a connection that was unbroken. But at this moment in time, simply because of me and you, that connection was temporarily broken. God must have sat in heaven holding himself back. And Jesus was on earth crying out. And God blanketed the whole earth with darkness. Because in a symbolic way, God didn't want to see what was happening. Symbolic because God sees everything. And why was he doing that? Why was he bearing that kind of pain? Because it was necessary for that transaction to take place. It was necessary for God to disconnect temporarily from him. It was necessary for him to experience what he had never experienced before. In a significant sense, it was necessary for him to be forsaken. And why? Just because he loved you and me. Your, our minds begin to get a measure of that love. 
As the Bible says, Jesus cried out again. It wasn't just once. He cried out again. He just couldn't believe it. He couldn't cope with it. He knew it was part of the plan. But it was, it was too much. What a price to pay. So he cries out again with a loud voice. And then he yields up his spirit. And the next verse, I feel is one of the most important verses in this Bible. Then, verse 51, behold. Say with me then. Go and say it boldly. One more time. If you're worshipping online, type then into the chat. And then, say with me the word behold. <laughs> say it one more time. Those two words. Those who write scripts, what they do with those two words. Then, behold. Something happened. Something significant. Something mind-blowing. Something that put in perspective the prize that was paid. Something physical. That those who saw it happening might have ignored. But by the revelation of the Spirit of God to us, we understand that what happened next was it. That's why. That's why the prize was paid. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth testified to the awesomeness of what had happened. Men might not have understood it, but creation understood that something dramatic had happened that day. Creation understood that this was the prize of love. The soldiers might not have known. The rulers might not have known. The people might not have understand, understood. But creation itself began to testify by actions. The earth quaked. The rocks were split to testify that something momentous had happened. The veil was torn in two. Sixty feet high. Thirty feet wide. Four inches thick. No man touched it. But as he gave up the, his, the ghost, as he breathed his last, to show us for time and eternity that something momentous had happened. With no scissors, no knife, nothing to cut it, the veil was torn in two. What was significant about the veil? It was the covering of the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go beyond the veil. And he could only go at certain times of the year. If he went at any other times, he was dead. And even when he went at certain times of the year, he took a risk that God's judgment would fall upon him. 
as he ministered to God. If he made a mistake in the ministration, he was dead. And when he went, he took the sins of the people with him. But what had love done? The veil was torn in two. To signify that as a result of love, you and I don't need a high priest. We can go by ourselves into the Holy of Holies. There's no greater love than this.
happens in life sometimes life happens sometimes life just happens the beauty about the love of God is that it is ongoing it wasn't an event it's ongoing I just want to speak to someone here Who's at a place where life has happened or is happening. And you know what I mean. My wife and I, over the last few weeks, have had to minister to, talk about, deal with, in terms of serving the church, circumstances where life happened. Starts from things like a failed exam. But it gets more complicated. A sickness. In some cases, a sickness that without the intervention of God is pointing towards death. A child who's challenged. Dealing with that as life. A hope that's been dashed. Another pregnancy that was lost. business that has failed the loss of a loved one just ministering to one of our dearest workers and leaders here last night whose mother just died and the list goes on and on but life just happened a divorce, a marriage breakup a son who has gone astray a, a daughter who's doing what I don't, the list is endless but you know as Ariola sang towards the end that's not how the story ends this love of God is in that situation 
And I don't know why I've done this every service in the last so many weeks, but I feel that there's an impartation that's taking place here and to those of you who are online. If you're in that place where life has happened and you just need that overwhelming reassurance that flows out of the word that God loves you, come, come, come forward, come forward. Go on, come. You know yourself, come. You don't need anybody to assist with you. I'll need a ministry team again. We're just going to just, just, just minister to you. Life happened, yes, but it doesn't change the love of God. Come. I might not even have mentioned what it was, but just come. Come. And, and as Ariola and, and the choir start with that song and just begin to sing about the love of God, you will experience it. This isn't a religious high. This is just creating room for the Spirit of God. And, and, and those ministering to you, some of them will have a word for you. And just listen as they give you the word from God. But whether they have a word or not, the Spirit of God is just going to move. Go on. Those of you in the, in the church, why, why don't you just receive the love of God where you are? Receive it. Receive it. Praise to 
asking God for the miracle of revelation. That's what we're asking for. That over the next few weeks that God will reveal his love to us in a way that we've never experienced before. It's going to totally transform our lives, transform our church, transform who we are to others as we receive this love of God in our hearts. Say with me, Heavenly Father, I open up my heart to receive your love. Holy Spirit, please illuminate my heart with the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. And as I end, if there's anyone who hasn't received what the Bible calls the indescribable gift of God. That's Jesus as your Lord and Savior. What better day to do that than today? If you just say this prayer with me, then you receive him into your heart. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus Christ. I receive him into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I commit by His grace to turning away from anything that I'm doing that is sinful and to embracing a life with you and a life with Him. Help me, God. I confess that I'm now a child of yours born today into your family in Jesus name and together we all say with whoever said that prayer Amen Amen. God bless you